Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Ross Kemp. Over the last 18 years, I've made some 90-odd documentaries predominantly in hostile environments, from Afghanistan to Syria, from El Salvador to the Congo. And it's fair to say that during that time, I found myself in a few interesting situations. I've been shot at, tear gassed, had knives pulled on me and spears thrown at me. But in all those years, what's impressed me the most is the resilience of the human spirit. Our ability, no matter where we're from, to overcome and make it through to the other side. So, in my new series, The Kempcast, I'll be talking to some incredible individuals who all have engaging stories to tell and have themselves overcome some extremely tough moments in their lives. Right now, we're living in unprecedented times and we should be doing all we can together to get through this as safely as possible. I hope that if you subscribe to the Kempcast and hear how my guests overcame their toughest moments, it may help you overcome yours, whether you're going through one right now or you're faced with one in the future. Joining me today is the one and only Ricky the Hitman Hatton MBE. During his successful boxing career, He held four separate world titles and is truly one of the most popular British boxers, if not sportsmen, of all time. I hope you enjoy the show. Ricky, um, thanks for agreeing to talk to us, mate. No, pleasure. Um, How have you found lockdown, mate? Um, To be honest with you, I was a little bit worried when it first came about because I know people... um, Know the, know the story on me. I've suffered a little bit with my mental health, you know, in the, in the past uh, few years. And um, I live on my own now. And I think when it first come about, I think, like all of us, I think we was a little bit weary. Oh, where's this going to end up, you know, and all that. And uh, I think the first couple of weeks, I uh, I didn't take it too good. I was sat in the house. I was filling my face with food and having a bit of a drink and all that. And I thought, Rick, you, if this is going to last two or three months or whatever it's going to last, you can't carry on like this, mate. You know, you work so hard to get your life back in that on track and in the position it was, don't start, you know, going down the, 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 the same road. And I just looked at it as a training camp because when I used to when I used to fight, I used to do 12 weeks training camp where I'd, I'd diet, I'd train every day, I'd have no, I wouldn't have a drink, you know, I wouldn't see my family, I wouldn't see my mates. And so the lockdown wasn't as extreme as a training camp. Do you, do you know what I mean? You know, I, I still have kids able to come, my girls able to come round and, and see me. And once I got that, the fact training camp mentality in, in my brain. I think it's, um, I can't say I've enjoyed it, but it, I, I, 
he's done me the world of good, to be honest. I lost a little bit of weight, you know, I'm, I'm feeling good and healthier, better in me, myself. I think I've done about, about a stone and a half in. So um, to use a, a bad thing to my advantage, yeah. But that has been something that you have had to do all the way through, well, through your boxing career, wasn't it? You say, I've just done a stone and a half. For most people, they'd be, you know, Weight Watchers lady or man of the year if they could just lose a stone and a half that quick. Do you think you've perfected the art of losing weight quickly? Yeah, well, well, I mean, there has been a lot of fighters in history that, you know, have had to lose a load of weight, you know, and I, I was known as Ricky Fatton once. By the time we were brave enough to shout it from 100 miles away, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, so I, I, I don't think I helped myself, but, you know, you know, everyone knew I'd, you know, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd eat and I'd put weight on and have a little pint of Guinness and that, and people used to, I mean, that's, but people could relate to me, you know, because of that. I mean, if I was, um, I'm a boxing trainer now, and, um, you know, if any of my me, me boxers wanted to put weight on to the extent like I used to do, they'd get a clip round the ear, to be honest with you. It's a simple case of, you know, do as I say, but not as I did, you know. And, yeah, I was, I was, I was sort of like famous for putting weight on. And although I wouldn't advise it, because I think if I hadn't, I've, if I'd have looked after myself a little bit better, my career might have been able to go on for a few more years extra, because, I mean, you can't burn the candle up both ends and get away with it for forever. But I think... Um, I think because being the, the little scallywag uh, I was and the, the Jack the Lad, I think that's where the fan base come from. So if you're saying to me, would it change it? Probably not, you know. No, and, and we'll go on to the, just the size of that fan base, but that is something that you've got on the record as saying, you know, I think you, you, you've been a four times world champion at, 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 different, at different weights, but you're more proud of the fact that, you know, you have that, that fan base, that 40,000 people will travel across the pond to see your box, that 58,000 will fill a, a sports arena. Uh, I mean, you, know, you I watched some of those scenes last night. I was looking at some of the old fights. and I mean, it was, it was hat and mania, wasn't it? It was fairy tale stuff, to, to be honest with you. You know, the, the crowds, you know, when the first time I went to Vegas, there was, um, I think there was like 5,000 went to the Paris Hotel. And then for the Castillo fight, there was 10,000. Then for Mayweather, there was 35,000. And then for Pacquiao, there was like 20,000. And I think, you know, we, men we mentioned that, um, Frank Bruno before there, Ross, you know, was one of our one of our favourites, one of our, you know, very proud to call him a, a mate now. But, you know, I mean, when he boxed Mike Tyson in Las Vegas, he had the record number of fans going over to watch, and it was 10,000. And when, you think, when I fought Mayweather, you know, 35,000. I mean, these are these, this is like... More, more, more fans than my heroes and the people I, I, I grew up aspiring to be. You know what I mean? It's, uh, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. You know, like fifty-eight thousand at the City of Manchester Stadium for my comeback fight after Mayweather was was sold out in a fortnight, in two weeks. You know, it's, it's like, uh, it's a some stuff that I'll never ever. You know, I, I still piss myself and having to having to believe it. You know, the the fan base that that I had. And when you think, you know, if you know, I'm, 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 when I boxed in Vegas, I was like tripling the amount of fans our Frank took there. How can that not be your best ever achievement? You know, it was that was, and it makes me feel proud when I when I go to the pub or I walk down the street and people still talk about the big fights and the fights in in Vegas. It makes me feel proud knowing how many people are such enjoyment abroad to people, you know, you know, yeah. But you were, and well, you were an awesome fighter, mate, and let's, let's not put that aside. You may be a man of the people, and that is often rare because the attention that you get uh, is overwhelming as, as a fighter. I, I would like to talk to you about the psychology of that. 
you know, if you're playing in a World Cup final as a footballer um, and you lose, you can turn to 10 of those other blokes and say, well, if only you'd squared the ball at that point. Or, do you know what? If you hadn't tackled him there, we wouldn't have given the penalty away. There's ways that you can offload uh, excuses as to why you fail. There are very few people that you can turn to as a fighter, particularly when you lose. And it's also incredibly public, isn't it? Yeah. And it's like, you know, with football, you know, you've got them, them 10 teammates on the pitch a matter of yards away from you. And the thing is with, with boxing is like, you know, you have your trainer that will give you the advice and that minute rest in the corner. But then, you know, you know, when he puts the gum shield back in, it's like the referee blowing the whistle. When you put the gum shield back in, it's like you get out on the pitch on your own there. You know what I mean? And it's not you're not having a nudge or an elbow or a kick on the ankle. You're getting you're getting bones broke. You know, so it's uh, and I think you've got to have massive to be a boxer. I mean, to 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 do for a living to get punched in the face. I mean, you've got to have uh, you've got to be a, a rare breed <laughs> anyway upstairs to to want to do that for for a living. But uh, I think you've got to have huge, huge, massive self belief, and I think it's the biggest thing that you can take into boxing. I mean, you've got to have there's all things you've got to take into consideration. You've got to have the chin, you've got to have the stamina, you've got to have the you know the knowledge, the game plan. But the one thing is, because you I mean you can't turn out there and be be brilliant every night. Some nights, you know, it's going to go wrong and it's going to go a bit tits up. You know, and you know, there's sometimes when it, that's happening. It's only you can drag yourself through it. You know, your trainer can give you that advice in, the, in that minute of the round, but it's only you. You've got it. You've got one that, that's got to do it. You've got to take the advice on the board and then go out and do it on your own. And that's the. Um, I think that's why boxers are so probably respected because I think you know when you when they, you see the fights in Vegas, you see all the footballers go watching it. You see all the film stars going watching it. You know, because I think most people say, you know what, I could do I could do acting for a living, or I could do cricket, or I could do football, but could I do that? Could I do that game? Probably not. And I think that's why we're holding um, boxers held in such high high regard, and, and rightly so. But it's ultimately you've got to have massive self belief. You know, when the pressure's on and there's only you and that man across the ring, that's when you've got to have the huge belief in yourself. And I was very fortunate. You know, I wasn't blessed with the talent of most, but I was blessed with heart, desire, determination, and a massive self belief. Even when even when people didn't think I could, you know. Where does that self-belief come from? I don't know. It's, um, it's, I think it's something you must be born with. You know what I mean? It's, you know, it's, and, you know, your confidence builds with each, with each win. And as your career progresses, you go from four round to six round and eight round and the people you beat. So your confidence goes up. But I think it can only be, you know, I was from a very young age, from 18 years, years of, years of age. You know, when people used to interview me, they used to, you know, and I've never been an arrogant person. I mean, that's why people like me. But from a very young age, they went, what are you going to be? Oh, I said, the best in the world. They went, oh, world champion. I went, no, no, the best in my weight. The best in the world. And they used to think, who's this cocky little shit? <laughs> but, uh, but you weren't that cocky. You were just determined, weren't you? That was that self-belief coming out. I always had self-belief. And I, I used to read, you know, the, the reporters, they used to turn around and say, well... He sells a lot of tickets and he's very exciting, but he gets caught and he gets hit with the right hand too often and his defence is a little bit leaky. And um, and I just, it sort of like worked for me. And that was my fuel to go out and prove people wrong because I, you know, I used to think, am I, am they see, am I seeing something there or not? Or am I, am I just kidding myself of, you know, what I've written? And, um, but it's like that, having that self-belief in yourself and it doesn't matter listening what people do, that tunnel vision, that that's what I'm going to achieve, that's what I want to do. 
and I was able to do it. And it's because of that, I was able to meet people that ultimately had more talent than me. Do you know what I mean? But because I had self-belief and I worked hard and I trained hard and I wanted it a little bit more, I was able to meet people that had uh, more talent than me. And I think that's what people loved about me. You know, some fights didn't win because I wore me out of my sleeve and I put my foot down and got stuck in. And I think that's why people people like me, you know. Um, just talk to me then for... You know, I was a, a, a London schoolboy when I was a kid, right? I know that horrible feeling of having, when he doesn't grip your hand and he lifts the other guy's hand, you're waiting for that ref to lift that hand up. You went through all that and you were incredibly good at it, but you know at one point you got cheated, don't you? Yeah. What, what did that mean to you when you found out that even though you'd won that fight and it was at an, an international level, wasn't it, but still amateur, yeah. What did that mean? What did that mean? What did that tell you about the fight game at that point? Well, it's, you know, to be honest with you, I my, my amateur coach, who's passed away now, sadly, Mr. Paul Dunn, uh, God rest his soul, he, um, he used to say to me, and I was devastated, because, you know, even though I was only 17 years of age and it was in the World Junior Championships in Havana, Cuba. Quarterfinals? Was it quarterfinals? Yeah, quarterfinals. Uh, no, semifinals, actually. I beat, um, I beat a Georgian, and then I beat... The Cuban, and in fact, I'm the I'm the only British fighter to beat a Cuban in Cuba presently to, to this date. You know, I mean, I beat the favourite, beat the Cuban, and just how good the Cubans were, they won every weight division except two, mine and the one above. You know, so correct me if I'm wrong. They weren't allowed to fight professionally, so their amateurs were their professionals. But they, they, they were like professionals, and even in the world juniors, only 17 years of age, they were like they were like just a different breed, and to to fight one in Cuba. So anyway, I beat the Cuban, then I beat the American, and I was matched against a Russian, and um, and um, I won the fight quite comfortably. I I fought, and I thought, oh, in the final here, and the you know, and they raised the other one's hand, and um, in fairness, all the Cubans all stood up in the crowd and all started booing and everything like that. So I was devastated. But my but you know my um, trainer Paul Dunn told me something, and I tell my lads now, I say, listen, you know you. You can't be brilliant every night. You can't win every single fight. You're going to have little bumps along the way. But what the, you know, it's not where you start in this game. It's where you finish. He said, as long as you get beat, you know what I mean? As long as you can move on and tap from it, you know. And there's so many fighters like that. We, we keep referring to our Frank, don't we? But, I mean, how many times did Frank fight for the world title and he didn't get it? He got knocked out and he come back and he got knocked out. He got there in the end. And that's the type of, you know, attitude you've got to have. And I... I was told that from my, my first, which that was ultimately my first disappointment, Ross, where I thought my world had come to an end. I thought, you know, I was going to be a world champion and then all of a sudden it wasn't. I thought it was, I couldn't, I couldn't have felt any, any worse. And, but the right words said at the right time by my, my, my trainer and that mentality has stayed with me till present day, I think. And that all wraps into that self-belief. The lovely thing I love, this is just great about your professional career and it tickled me. Um, your first fight, I think, was in Hale, in the Leisure Centre, the Kingston Leisure Centre, and then your second match was in Madison Square Gardens. Yeah. Does that sum up boxing? It does, yeah, to be honest. Hale Leisure Centre one week, next week, Madison Square Gardens. Yeah, and I was very fortunate that um, I won uh, about eight national amateur titles, so when Frank Warren signed me, you know, he, was, uh, he, wanted to, he had obviously high hopes for me. 
And I made my professional debut, which I, I impressed. And then he said, you're going to box at Madison Square Garden, you know, on the Nassim Hamad versus Kevin Kelly undercard. And I thought, wow, because I, I was always a, a, like a boxing historian, right, from a, being, a, being a, a youngster and a teenager. I always watched the, all the fight videos of all the great champions and all the fighters of old. And then all of a sudden they said Madison Square Garden. I thought, oh, you're joking. And it was like, it was in, incredible. It was incredible. I mean, there was one, you know, there was one. I was on obviously one of, doing a four rounder. I was on one of the first fights of the of the night, and the ring announcer, ring announcer was um, Michael Buffer. You know, you know, let's get ready to rumble. Rumble. Yeah, was doing, you know, he, he was he was the ring announcer. You know, for me four rounders, and I thought, oh my god, it's Michael Buffer and George Foreman sat at ringside commentating for for HBO, and you know, it's like. One minute, like that like we said earlier, one minute you're boxing in working men's club in and around Manchester, and then the next, you know, a few months after you're boxing at Madison Square Garden, and you know, it was brilliant. I put in a great performance. Everybody was talking about me, even back there at our young age. And then I come back to ringside to watch the main event, and I see my mate and Kevin Kelly, and it's like it was like Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, just like seats away from you. I thought, oh my god, I thought I've made it already. If I retire now, I'll be happy. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it was brilliant. And there's, um, that was like only two fights in, you know. And I mean, I mean, you know, September 11th is also is remembered for the sort of tragedies which happened in New York. But September 11th was also my debut, and it was um, Friday just gone, obviously September 11th, and uh, 23 years ago that um, that probably Did you think ever think in your wildest dreams, and it sounds like you did, that you were going to have the career? That you've had? I always believed that I could do, do you know what I mean? And, and I was I was training in a gym in Manchester called the Phoenix Camp. Uh, it was in Salford in Manchester. And um, there was loads of British champions, Commonwealth champions, European champions, and even, even world champion at the time, Carl Thompson, who was in them brilliant wars in Manchester with Chris Eubank years, years ago. Well, I shared a gym with all these guys, Ensley Bingham, who was the British champion, Steve the Viking Foster, who was Commonwealth champion. Andy Holligan was European champion and British champion. All these champions in the gym. And I was just a little whippersnapper at 16 that I went, when I first went down to train with him. And all these people, all these champions were telling me I was going to be world champion. And so I think to myself, if these people are telling me, I must have half a chance. So I did have confidence in myself, a huge self-belief that I was going to get there. But even, even so... Even so, you, you, there's always like just a, a pinch of salt. You say them things with a pinch of salt, but you never really believe that they... Even though you're confident enough, you know, to achieve and achieve it to the state, I did achieve it. At, you know, I mean, you know, record crowds going over to Vegas, you know, and 58,000 at the City of Manchester Stadium, and fighting the. Um, and as it turned out, not just the best, not just the, the best fighters in my weight division, I became the best in my weight division and two weights, but meeting, you know, fighting people like who go down as two of the greatest in history. You know, you think of Mayweather and Pacquiao. We're going to go down as the greatest in history. And until I made me come back, those were the only two that beat me. So as hard as it was to accept, I can't have too many complaints, mate, can I? You know, so. Not really. But I want to come to that in a minute. Talk me through. You're in that, that dressing room before that fight, yeah? Whether it's the MGM Grand, whether it's before you go out, that's what's now the Emirates, wherever it is, yeah? What's going through your mind, those last minutes? Or even, you know, as the dressing gown comes on, and you walk through that crowd. How much pressure 
is on you at that point. Is it about you winning? Is it about winning for them? What is it about at that moment? People say what's one of the, the you know, the, the hardest things about you, you know, and I found the most difficult fight time of my fight was when the TV people, you know, stick their head in the changing room door and go, right, Ricky, let's go. And it's like, it's like, that's when you've got to hold your nerves together. The more, you know, reality hits in, then you think, oh, you're in the change room, you're warming up, you're warming up, you're warming up, and you think it's never going to come. And then all of a sudden, when they stick their head around the door, Rick, let's go, you think, oh, shit, it's here now. <laughs> so, and that's when you've got to hold your, your, yourself together. And I, I always try and think to myself, because you've got, you know, the fights used to be on Sky Sports, uh, live on HBO or Showtime. You've got thousands of people, you know, in the, in the arena watching it. And then, you, you know, you've been working on your game plan with your trainer for like 12 weeks. And that's when you think, when the pressure's on, when the crowd's roaring and your, your bottle's going, that's when you've got to hold your nerves together and and, keep, and and try and remember that game plan. And as I'm walking to the rings, you know, you know, you, you start breathing a little bit heavier and you just think, I, I used to just think to myself, just remember the game plan. Remember the game plan. It's essential that we get off to a good start and we get that game plan set in motion right from the first bell. If you get off to a good start, then obviously everything snowballs. Then you know you fall into a little bit more of a rhythm sooner than you normally would, and it's you know just hold your nerves together. And I think that's what the, you know the, the good champions were always very fortunate to do was to hold it together at that moment when you when you're expected to crumble. And it's that's the, that's the difference. And it's when you get to the very top, it's all fine lines, narrow margins. It's fine lines which make or the difference, and it's someone that can just hold it through together. And as I was walking to the ring, I always used to think to myself, just think how hard you've trained, Ricky, the sacrifices you've done, not seeing your family, not seeing your kids, not seeing your friends and your mates, you know, running every morning, dieting, you've lost three stolen weight, again, you're fat little son, you know what I mean? Look what, it, look what he's made you go through to get to here. And every, if he beats you, he's taking money, he's taking money out of your kid's mouth. That's what I used to yeah. that in order to to psych myself up, to get myself in a in a frenzy. And it's one thing, psyching yourself up like, like that. You can imagine that would psych yourself up. But it's also, you know, that controlled aggression. You've got to psych yourself up, but also keep your nerve and keep your cool. And... Have you ever over-adrenalised? Have you ever got to the point where there was so much pumping through you, it locked you up? You wouldn't fly, you weren't, you weren't flowing? Uh, I did one time. I think when I fought Floyd Mayweather, I... Um, and he, you know, let's have it right, he, he can annoy you up him, can't he, Mayweather, to be honest with you. He can get <laughs> his skin a bit, can't he? But I remember when, when I went to the weigh-in, and um, I think it did put him off a little bit, because I think he could see there was no fear, you know, we had like, you know, 10,000 10, British fans at the weigh-in, you know, and it was, he got in my face, and then I got in his, and there was a bit of pushing and shoving, and I got the mic, and I found the rest of the crowd, and I think you, I think you must have thought, oh, this fella's come to fight, you know, you know when, he, when he, you can tell when someone believes that they're not just coming here to make the numbers up. And I think when he saw me at the weigh-in, but I was acting a little bit out of character, you know, I looked at him and he was winding me up and I went to give him that sign, you know, which is something I've never, ever done in my life. And I think to myself, maybe he did get a little bit under me, uh, under me, me skin a little bit, you know, and maybe as, you know, at the weigh-in, I overreacted a little bit more than what I, I got a little bit giddy. But um, when the bell went for the first round, you know, um, Billy said he's into it. And I, I eased into it and he hit me left up. Didn't even see it was that fast. And I said to Billy at the end of the first round, I said, I can't stand off this fellow. I said, I've got to use what my strengths are, which is punch volume, aggression, work rate, stay on top of him and try and throw more punches than him. And it was working for a, for a short bit. But, you know, so 
But I never, I never got myself. I got wound up at the waiting, and then when I when I went back to the hotel room, I went, "You went a bit giddy there. Settle yourself down here. We can't take that into the ring tomorrow." Uh, and then when I went into when, when the fight came the following day, I I cooled myself down and. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think that was one when when the adrenaline got the better of me. It was at the Mayweather May, Mayweather weigh-in. Yeah, absolutely. People who are outside the fight game often perceive that that kind of aggression that's seen at a weigh-in is, is manufactured by, by promoters, by the TV. That's not always the case, is it? Definitely not with me, you know, and I think that's why I keep, you know, people, um, people like me. We did the 24-7 programme with Mayweather where we had to go all over America, all over Britain, London, Manchester, Michigan, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and I was, I was, I was with him about two weeks. And I come back to Manchester and I, I was like I was doing my stand-up comedy version. I was telling the one-liners and taking the mickey out of him. And that's when I that's when, that's when I really did get under his, his skin. I think Oscar De Loya told me Mayweather's on the train going back to London here. He's doing cartwheels. He said, could you, you wound him up? And that, that was that's just my my, my and I can't it's it's our character for me to get nasty like I did at the Mayweather weigh-in. My character is to have a tell a joke and a one-liner and try and get under the skin but in, in with humor. And I think that worked a little bit in the um, the, the 24/7, but it was uh, it was a great experience. I mean, ultimately, I got beat by by Mayweather, but you know, when you you look back now, probably with the fans that went over, and you know, and with him being with him being the, the man he is, probably the, the best of all time there's ever been. Um, you know, to when I look back at that, and I like to think Floyd would probably admit when it, when you think of because the, the fans were there, the atmosphere, the the difference in personalities between me and him, and the difference in styles and that. Um, I've, I've never been to Vegas, and I've been to Vegas to watch everyone. I've never experienced an atmosphere than it was when me and Floyd went. And I think uh, I think it'd be even when I went to watch Floyd and Pacquiao fight, I don't think it it, it captivated the same excitement as as mine did that weekend and uh, even though I ended up in defeat still one of the proudest moments of my life and rightly so sir and not many more as you know not many very very few on this planet could ever have achieved such heights when you're in the ring what are you seeing I mean are you looking for combinations are you going oh he's laying off now I can I can go under him well well, well the main thing is I think he's just getting off to a he's, he's getting off to a to a good a good start you know what I mean and, and you know I mean and what you want to do you know because you know you want you want to whatever the tactics you've been discussing if that first bell comes you know and Billy says when he does this when he does that when he does that do this do that and it starts coming off you, you warm into the fight then, you you know, you, you, your confidence goes up because, you know, everything we've been working on is working now. But then sometimes, you know, you know everything, you've, you've, got, you've had a game plan in your mind and then all of a sudden you try it and it don't come off. And then, you've, you know, then as, as a fighter, you've got to think, right, plan, plan B here now, I need, I need a second game plan here now, you know, what, what am I going to do here in order to alter it? Like, like the main of a fight because I thought I'd ease into it and... It was, if I ease into it, it'd absolutely pit me, pit me off. Sure. But, you, but what you are, what you are, well famous for historically and will always will be, is one of the best body punches that's ever existed, and that's that game, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And to be to be honest with you, I, I thought the referee gave um, Floyd a little bit of help. I mean, people probably sound like sound Ricky sounds like a broken record when he says that, but but, but Floyd didn't need any help. He was. Uh, and he was very good. At, he was very good at, at, lo at looking after his body because you know if he had that shoulder roll technique where he'd, he'd cross his arms over his body, pick the body shot off there, pick the body shot up there, 
handed roll of right handed capture left hook. He was, um, even though traditionally he was known as a, a more of a distance fighter, he was very he was very good up close. You know what I mean? And uh, he was hard to hit the target. Yeah, he was very hard to hit the target. Yeah, and one of my best things with me body punches. You know, I could find that target. I could I could put put it on a, a one pence piece me that target. But with Floyd, because he was so good def defensively, you know, it, and it. There was times when I used to come back to my corner and, and, you know, and even after the fight, when I went back to the change rooms after, you know, where even though I thought the referee might have might have been doing him a few more favours, I come back to the change rooms. It's the first time in all my fights where I thought, wow, he was good. You know what I mean? Just, you know, so many punches were just glancing off him, you know, and where and I was famous for my accuracy, especially to the body, you know, and... Uh, him to deflect so many shots and just make them miss and slide and get an half block on one. It was, um, it was, it was really, really, uh, really, really something. Yeah, and uh, you know, we'll probably go down as one of the, the the greatest of all time, if if not, you know, the best actual boxer for you know for technique and ability and everything. I don't think there's many better than him. Uh, there's not many as arrogant as him, but he can afford to be, can't he? And I you know what. I tell you a story about him. We were filming in Vegas, doing a story about people living in the tunnels. You know, yeah. people who yeah, come there for yeah, a weekend. Sorry, sorry, yeah. yeah, and we were loading the. We we're outside the MGM Grand, putting uh, the cameraman was putting the cameras on, and he wandered out and just asked what we were doing. And there was no flash, there was no arrogance. He was on his own, and and we just went, "Oh, that was Floyd Mayweather. Was that Floyd Mayweather? Um, you know, the guy that was helping us load the vehicle. Oh yeah, that's Floyd Mayweather. So you know, maybe some of that's." Part and parcel of that salesman, that technique that you have to yeah. be draw the crowds in. I don't know. Of course, of course it is. You know, listen, we're all built differently. And I think to myself, you know, that my prime example is um, Tyson Fury. Some of the stuff Tyson Fury comes out in his interviews and stuff like that, you know, as as his as his mate, I think, oh Tyson, shut up. But you know, that's Tyson, you know what I mean? But when you you know you see some of the things over the years, he's he's done interviews, Tyson, where he said this and he's upset someone and he's upset that, you know what I mean? But that's Tyson. You know, when you see the real man, which I'm very proud to say I know, he's nothing like that. People are starting to see, because he's got over his mental problems, he's had a lot of difficulties over the years as well, Tyson. People are starting to see the real, real Tyson now, not the person that, you know, the minute this microphone comes up and he's performing and he's kicking off and he's pushing and shoving and calling everyone. And, you know, I think that's the same. You've got to sell yourself, haven't you? You know what I mean? And... Uh, no one else is going in. I, I, I'm, I'm talking about the put the, um, the the boxer Floyd Mayweather, you know, the the person on the camera with the interviews. I, I don't know him publicly, so he, he's probably he's probably one of us. He's probably sound as a pound. Did you ever see him afterwards? Um, not really. I saw him after at the press conference, and he um, he was giving me lots of praise. You know, he was saying, "Oh, Ricky," he said, "You know." I'm glad I got you when I did because he said, you know, if I hadn't knocked you out, I said you'd have been there all night. You know, he said you kept coming, and he said I kept going to me um, to me corner, and he said, um, you know, his trainer Roger Mayweather who passed away now, God rest his soul. He used to say to him, he said, don't worry, you've done him now, you've got him now. This next round, you take him out. He said, and you used to you come out even faster. He said, you know, fair fair play to you, and uh, that's what he was. And even when the fight was running away from me, you know, towards the latter end of the fight, you know what I mean? I still kept going at him, still get going at him, where most would probably say, tonight's not my night, I'll just jab and move and keep out of the way, and live to fight another day. No, for as long as I was in there, I always tried to knock him out, and I think that's that's what he was he respected me for in, in a roundabout way. But that does 
define you, doesn't it? Again, that self-belief. A lot of your fights have gone all the way, nearly all the way, haven't they? I mean, yeah. that, that, and that takes some, that also takes such energy. I mean, for people who have done it, it's hard enough doing it for three three-minute rounds, doing it for 12. And also, it's not just, just try holding your hands up and jumping up and down on the spot for three minutes, let alone having someone chasing you around that potentially could take you, take you out. Yeah, well, the thing is with boxing and, and what people, people always, they, they say it's the hardest game in the world, but generally what people see on the TV is, is, is just the fight, isn't it? You know, 12, you know, 12, three-minute rounds on the fight, and they go, God, that's a tough game. But they've not seen the, you know, the, 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 the 12 weeks leading up to it, you know, when you first start going and you're first getting your weight off and then, you you know, you've got a diet and then, you you know, you you know your trips to the pub, they've got to be knocked on the head, you know, and you, you, know you, you get up in the morning, you go running, you come home, you have your breakfast, you train, you come home, have your tea, you watch a bit of TV, you go to bed and you do the same every, every day. And then as the fight gets nearer, you know, your, your miles, your road work, the, the mileage gets upped and then, the, you know, you're sparring, the rounds gets upped, you know what I mean? You, you know, you for about a month before, you do like 12 rounds sparring practically, you know, every, every day, dieting and all that. And then once you've done all that and made the weights and everything, then you've, then you've got the small, the small matter of the fight. Um, what do you think about Mike Tyson coming out of retirement? Um, you know, I'm very fortunate that I've met Mike on several occasions, to be honest with you. And several occasions that I have met him is when he was in his, his dark place uh, as well. He was... Uh, I think he was on a lot of medication, you know, whether they be legal or not. And I think he was going through a real, uh, real, real tough time. So it's lovely to see him, how he's come out the other end with all the, the, the well-documented problems he's had. But I mean, he's like, he's been doing motivational speaking now, hasn't he? You know what I mean? He was doing theatres in, in Los Angeles. He's lost all that weight. He's keeping healthy now. And it's, it's, it's nice when you see, you know, similar to my situation, as we were talking about before, that you've seen where they've come from to where he is. It makes me feel dead, dead chuffed for him because he's one of my heroes. He'll always be all of our anyways. But, uh, yeah, but, I mean, he's, he's still... And to see him in the shape he's in is, is unbelievable. But he's still 53. You know what I mean? I made my comeback, and I made my comeback at 36. God, Mike, Mike's, you know, stick another decade on, uh, another couple of decades or more, you know, on, for, for Mike to, to do it. And I realised in my comeback fight that my best days had, had, had gone. So if I'm feeling at 36, I have no doubt, as well as he's looking for a 53-year-old, he's still 53. And I think Roy Jones Jr. is um, considerably young, younger than him. Um, very legend of the sport as well. Very, very, you know, a lot younger, very talented speed. And I think it was only up to a couple of years ago he actually had his last uh, competitive fight. So, um, just as a, as, as, as a pure hero, which they both are, but from Mike's point of view, being the older man and that, you know, I can't help but feel it, it, it can end in tears a little bit. And I certainly hope I'm, I certainly hope I'm wrong. Because, I mean, they say there's going to be an exhibition, which means, you know, which means like a little bit of a, a, a spar in front of a crowd. So, you know, what is Mike's mentality? And you can't teach what Mike's got, because I, I was very similar. When I went there, I wanted to hurt my opponents. You know what I mean? And Mike is Mike has the same mentality. So how can you go, go in there in front of thousands of people and just, just take it easy, Mike? The minute he gets picked off with a few jabs, Mike's going to want to go back to, to the old Mike. I might be wrong here, and I certainly hope I am, but I just think it, it, it just it could end in, uh, in tears. And, you know, the last thing you want, 
you, last thing, you never lose your punch as you get older. One thing you do, you, lo- you lose your resistance to a punch. And I'd like to see Mike, you know, all right, get hurt, you know, after the after the, the legends, the career that they've, they've had and the fights that they've been in, and they're both, both heroes of mine, I'd, I'd, just, I'd just rather not see it, if that's, that's, and that's only my opinion. Um, talking about two fighters who are a little younger, well, a lot younger, I guess, uh, Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua, what's the chances of them actually getting in a ring together? I think there's a good chance because I think that is a fight that has to happen, you know, for, you know, for, for the sake of, of British boxing. You've got Tyson Fury, the un, undefeated lineal world champion, if you like. Joshua's, Anthony's won all his belts back. Do you know what I mean? We've got the two best heavyweights in the world. And I tell you what, it was only a few years ago, we didn't, we didn't know, we, could, we couldn't name two British heavyweights. Now we've got the two best heavyweights on the planet. Uh, and the lockdown, it's a shame, couldn't have come at such a worse time, to be honest with you, you know what I mean? So, because everything's up in the air about not just this particular fight, but fights everywhere in, in general. It's, uh, it really is tough times, but I think it's got to happen. And I think it's, it's a fight that is that big. I think it, it must happen. And I think the promoters, whether, you know, you know um, AJ's promoter, Eddie Hearn, and, and Tyson's promoter, Frank Warren, and the TV networks, and BT and Sky... I think they've all got to be realistic and, you know, sit down together and say, listen, let's, you know, because that's the thing is we're promoting, isn't it? You know, that one, everyone wants the lion's share of the, of the pie, don't they? But I think they've got to turn around and say, here's what it is. There's enough money for it to all go around there. You know, let, let's all just be sensible. We'll have that, you have that, and let's get this fight on, you know, for the, for the fans. And sometimes... It doesn't happen, but I've got a, I've got a confident feeling about this. I've got a confident feeling about this. I think to themselves, I think the the promoters and the TV company are, are just the people that are basically involved in it. I think they're going to leave the head on the chopping board if this for some reason this fight doesn't happen. I think fans will want to know why, and I think they deserve to ask. They'd be right to ask why. And if it comes down to greed, do you think that's a shame for boxing? I think it's just, it's been, been absolutely crying shame, to be honest with you. I mean, ultimately, I'm a better boxer. You want you want the best deal and the most money you can have, but you've got to look at the position. AJ's got all his belts back. Tyson's undefeated, the lineal champion. He's beat Wilder. If anything, I probably should say, you know, um, Tyson probably should get the lion's share because of his past victory and, you know, and, and he's, he's undefeated and stuff like that. But, yeah, but it's, uh, you know, two champions that we're both proud of. Absolutely. It couldn't be. I mean, it, it, in many sports, um, the UK probably not excelling at the moment. Um, heavyweight boxing is one where we certainly are, and it should be, you know, heralded, I guess. Yeah, and it's not just for the sports. I mean, to be honest with you, you know, I mean, what do you do when British kids, British kids see, you know, Tyson Fury world champion and AJ world champion or Carl Flock world champion? More kids want to go in the gym because they want to be... They want to be Anthony Joshua. They want to be Cal Flott. They want to be Tyson Fury. You know what I mean? And that's that's what it is. So you've got to look at it. You know, to have a fight of that stature where the country is going to be mesmerised by the whole a- a- occasion. It's not just about you know that fight who earns the most money. It has bigger bigger knock on effects to our sport in general. Do you know what I mean? And our economy, as you pointed out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I ask you something about obviously, you know, Billy Graham played a fundamental part in your development as a boxer. You um, beating um, Sue, to Sue, I can't say his name properly there. Um, but after that Mayweather fight, you sort of pied, didn't you? Is that right? Close to that? Yeah. Was that, what was the reason for that? Was that because the towel came in? Because you just thought it was time to move on? Well, well the re- no, the, the, not, not at all, to be honest with you. The, um, me and Billy Graham was um, Billy Graham when I'd, before Ricky Hatton came along. I mentioned earlier in the interview, Ross, that you know he had so many champions in his camp. You know, Kyle Thompson was a world champion, Enzo Bingo was a base champion, Paul Burke was a Commonwealth champion. Before Ricky Hatton came along, he was a cha- trainer of multiple champions anyway. And we've been doing it for a number of years. He used to do it on the body belt. If you remember the big body belt, he used to put on round his round his body. Where I used to, I used to do the majority of my training. But over the, over the years, because he trained that many champions, that many big punches, it, it started having injuries with his, with his hands where he had to, and his elbows, where he had to have injections in his elbows to numb, numb the pain so he could get through training sessions. And there were some days where I'd, I'd come in the gym and I'd, I'd say, oh, are we doing eight rounds on the body belt? And he'd say, oh, I can't today, Rick. You're going to have to just hit the bag or something like that and I thought to myself and it, it wasn't Billy's fault it's just father time you know what I mean he's you know just father time had just caught up with him and everything and you know I said to Billy I said Billy I said you, you know if I'm, if I'm going to continue after this Mayweather defeat and continue to have another fight uh, to carry on with my career I need you at your best and unfortunately I think them days might be behind you because you know you, you, you know if you're having needles in your hands and elbows you know and I had a fight at the City of Manchester Stadium against Juan Moscano, and it wasn't really my best performance. You know, uh, I won, but it wasn't really my best performance. And everyone was starting to ask for me to retire. You know, maybe I'd seen better days. And I said, if I'm going to give you one last go, Billy, I need, I need somebody that's going to give me 100%. And unfortunately, you know, your body's just packed in on you now, mate. So we parted company, and he didn't, he, he didn't agree with, he didn't agree with me. You know what I mean? He, he you know, so that's initially what we. 
what we, we, we fell out. And um, there was another reason why we, we, we did fell out, but, but that was that was nothing to do with, with, with we, we're friends now, me and Billy. We speak on the phone all the time. He comes to the gym every every now and again. And we, we realised that, you know, the main reason that we fell out was was nothing to do with us. It was it was due to do with a uh, with a third party, you know. So uh, I've I've moved on with with, with with that from from Billy and you know and and every everyone the whole team the former team we're all in, in a nice place now we're all friends again and it's it's it, it was brilliant but yeah I, I mean I I'd, I'd have been with I want to look for another trainer if Billy Graham was was you know fit and healthy and injury free and stuff like that he was the best trainer I worked with by a, by a country mile and I'd, and. I'd, I'd have been with him till the till the, till the finish if if it was in my best interest. But his injuries were just he wasn't been able to perform like he used to do all back in the day, you know. Was it was it with hindsight, and hindsight's a wonderful thing, the right thing then to go to, to Floyd Mayweather Senior? Um What made you make that decision? Well, I was, I was just I was out I was I was um I was without a trainer and I went with me my girlfriend at the time to, to Las Vegas. Just for just for a holiday, uh, and a friend of mine uh, out there, Lee Beard, who's a boxing coach in around the Manchester area, and says he was mates with Floyd Mayweather and does a bit of work with, with Floyd Senior. And he said, uh, "Why don't you come to the gym and have a look? What you know, see what you think of Floyd. You know, you don't have to you don't have to say anything or do anything. Just come and speak to him, watch him train, just have a see what you think." So I went to the gym, um, saw him train, listened to some of the things he was saying and the advice he was giving and that and. I thought to myself, well, you know, I'm pretty setting my ways there, but there's one thing that's always let me down is a little bit of my defensive work and everything like that. And, and, and the Mayweather, uh, Floyd Senior, or, or the Mayweathers in general, they were known for the defence. And I thought, maybe I can pick up a few little things. You know, you're not going to change. We can't alter the goalposts. You know, my style is set in stone pretty much now. But maybe, you know, he'll get me in shape. He's got a lot of experience. He can teach me a few little moves from a defensive uh, point of view. Maybe it was, you know, so I went with him. And... Um, my fight against Paulie Malinaji, my next one, was probably one of my best performances since I beat Kostya Zoo, you know, and it was, I was probably right in order. So everything looked on the surface, looked good. And then I went with, um, then the fight came against Manny Pacquiao to challenge for the pound for pound title once again. Um, and I think Floyd, um, I think he just went a little bit giddy. I think he was a little bit of a, an old school type trainer, you know, the, where Billy was... When I was with Billy, and I'd done so many 12-rounders with Billy over the years, I could practically do them with my eyes shut, but Billy was a, a, a trainer of train hard one day, then have a day easy. Then train hard, then an easy day. Hard, easy. So you push your body to the limit, and then you let it recover. Push your body. But when Floyd was a little bit different, you know, I did um, an extra four weeks with him for the, Malin for the, for the Pacquiao fight, then he did the Malinaji fight. And I think he... Uh, I think he overtrained me a little bit, you know, a little bit old school, you know, just, 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 you know, you know, sparring at Monday, sparring Wednesday, sparring Thursday, sparring Friday, and I'm saying, I feel shit, I feel crap here now, Floyd. Well, no, 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 you're right. I think I need a bit of a rest, mate. I, I, I've, I've trained for that many 12 rounders. I think I need a bit of a rest there, mate. No, 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 I know what I'm doing. 12 rounds again, 12 rounds again, and I think, I think looking back, I wish I'd opened my mouth and said, listen, Floyd, I'm experienced enough. You're killing me here. I need a rest. And, I'm no, I'm no expert now, but it is is considered wisdom now that you wave train in any sport that yeah. you do go hard, but then you have a day off in order yeah. to go in better the next day, and then you have a layoff. You, you still train, but you don't go 
balls to the wall, right? Every yeah, day. Absolutely. Because eventually you're going to burn out. Yeah, and I think that's a good trainer. He's got to know when to put 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 his foot down with you, and when he knows when to need a little bit. And I'm not calling him Floyd because I mean he he's, he taught me taught me a lot of um, so many good training methods and so many different different things that I still use in my training uh, today. Do you know what I mean? You know, wonderful, well full of knowledge. I mean, look what he did to his son. You know what I mean? So. You know, I mean, absolute wealth of knowledge. And I still use some of his training, but I think the one thing that let me down with Floyd Senior was there was no fast forward. And I think I think if you I think I speak not just for boxing, but I speak for any athlete here, whether you're you're, you're a runner, a sprinter, a tennis player, a boxer, a footballer, you can't you can't, you know, put your foot down non-stop and just leave it there, you know. Some some days, you know, you you've got to have a day off. Some days you've got to, you know, knock it, taper it down a little bit. And Floyd didn't have that in his vocabulary training-wise. So, but... Um, you said, tell a story that you went in before the fight with like a flyweight, a lightweight, just to speak your hands up, and he, he caught you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was I was sparring with the same guys for um, about, about a month out from the fight, and I was, uh, I was beating them up. And then, you know, once it got to like two weeks before the fight, where I was saying my last, my last hard week of a training camp, all of a sudden, I wasn't finding the target that quite good enough, and they were they were they were only lightweight, so they were pinging me, and my head was flying back here, and I was like, and then I threw one where I was a little bit more off balance than anything, but boom, he tripped me, and I went down, and I, I went, oh, and then Floyd May went, run, stop the spar, stop the spar, right, right, come on, jump out, have a rest, have a rest, and I uh, I sat on the apron, and I had my towel over my head. And I was, I was crying, and this is like about nine days out before the Pacquiao fight. My dad said, what's up, Rick? Ricky, you OK? You all right? Went, Just leave me a minute, Dad. I'll be all right. And that was, and I knew from that moment that I'd peaked too soon. And, you know, it, 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 it sounds like I'm making excuses for the, for the initial outcome because, I mean, at the end, of, Pacquiao was bombing out everyone at the time. So, but, you know, was I at my best when I got in there? I don't think I was. I think I left it in the gym about a fortnight, a fortnight earlier. Is that one of the biggest threats? Yeah, absolutely. Because I thought to myself, I'm knowledge enough. I've been in this game long enough now. And it doesn't mean I, I, if I pulled Floyd and say, no, I don't care. I want to rest there now. I would have been being disrespectful because I'm, I'm, I'm knowledge enough myself in my own right. I think I should have just said, listen, Floyd, I need a rest there. I'm burnt out. I need, I, I tell you what, I need, you need to give me a rest there. And if, if you have about four or five days off, I might get it back then. But if I keep it the way it's going, I'm only going to go. It's only going to go one way. It's going to go worse, and that's one. Um, that's one thing. If I could turn the clock back, I wish I'd have. Uh, I wish I'd have done that. But like I say, hindsight is such a good thing, you know. And lovely. It's not in the boxer's nature to turn around and go, "Oh, I need a rest. I don't want to work. Please, I need a rest. I need a rest." Because what do you do? You, you know, we're boxers. We think, "No, I'll, I'll go through it. I'll be all right." And I just wish I'd have opened my mouth here. Did you miss? Did you miss Billy at that point? Um. Not necessarily from a coaching point of view, but just from a from a well from from part of the coaching. Part of the coaching is not just the boxing; it's the it's what goes on up here, right? Yeah, absolutely. And Billy was Billy was my best mate, and, he, and thankfully to say he still is now to this uh, to this day. But yeah, it was closer than a wasn't just a boxer trainer relationship. We were best mates. We did everything together. You know what I mean? And when I was in the uh, when I was in the corner with him, and you know, and, you know, things were going bad. You know what I mean? Like sometimes you. You know, you, you can't look like you, you can't look like Sugar Ray Robinson every fight. You know what I mean? Some days it's going to go a little bit bad, and you're not quite getting it off. And 
and Billy could see that in the corner. And when he was giving me advice, you know, I knew when I looked in his eyes, you know, he was there for me. He was throwing every punch for me. You know what I mean? He, he was. He wasn't just there for the paycheck. Like you know, he was there because because he loved me, and you know, and he was giving me the best advice. So when I looked in his eyes and he looked in my eyes, there was that. There was that. Not sounding soppy. There was that closeness. There was that love. You know that he was. You know, wasn't just giving you advice just because you know to so we can get the get the win and get the paycheck. He was giving the advice for your health and your safety and to win the fight and nothing else. And that's uh, and that's when it was. It was. It was never whoever was going to go through. You can't just blame it on Floyd. If it had gone with Floyd, if it had gone with Buddy McGurk, if it had gone with uh, Freddie Roach, you know, it had never been the same as it was with me and Billy. And that's not being disrespectful to them. It's just that me and Billy were just like that. Well, also, it's a relationship that had developed since basically a young man, a kid, basically. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. First time working with Billy, I was 16. You know what I mean? People often talk about, um, Ricky, they talk about, oh, uh, those two famous fights, which were the two losses, Mayweather and Pacquiao. We're sort of forgetting that you had 45 victories, most of which you dispatched people often with body blows to the side, which is not the, often the way that people are knocked out. It takes an incredible amount of timing and energy and positioning to be able to expose a professional opposition to take that kind of punch and to put them down on the canvas. Do you often concentrate too much on those two losses rather than on the other victories, the overwhelming 45 victories? Yeah, well, to, to be honest with you, you, you know, we're, you know, we didn't at the time we didn't know, but as it as it's panned out now, we're probably going to go down as two of the greatest fighters in history. You know what I mean? So, oh, yeah, pound for pound. Yeah. yeah. So, but I mean, I, I was very. They they were number one pound for pound fighter in the world when I fought them. Mayweather was number one pound for pound best fighter in any weight division, any weight in boxing. Pacquiao was 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 the same. But you know, I also beat people like when I won my first. Major world title when I won the IBF title against Kostya Zou in Manchester, and uh, nobody gave me a chance against Kostya Zou. Kostya Zou was a uh, number two pound for pound in the in the in the world, you know. So I was able to make Kostya Zou quit on his his, his stool. Somebody who had uh, was just knocking out everyone for fun, but you know, in former world champions like Shambay Mitchell, three rounds, Zab Judah, two rounds, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm walking through the punches he was bombing everybody out with, and ultimately. He sat on his stool and went, no more, leave me alone, you know. So to be a champion that's formidable, because it will probably be one of the, the greatest like welterweights of all time, Kostya Zou. He was, uh, he was really, really was. That fight is widely recognised as the best performance of any British boxer in the last 25, 25 years. Absolutely, and I, I take that as a massive, um, a massive compliment in the sense that, you know, you know, everyone talks about them and there were fights even bigger than that one. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, <laughs> It really is a pinch yourself type type stuff, but it was. Uh, but no, that that was like the the day where I achieved my goal. I'd, I'd won the WBU world title uh, before that, but that was considered considered not not uh, a major recognised governing body. But the IBF and Koscielny was considered the, the the number one in the weight division, the undisputed champion, number two pound for pound. Nobody gave me give me a, a chance to to to, to beat him. And to, to be those were the days that when I was. A 16-year-old, when I first got to meet Billy, we would sit on the steps of the gym in Salford and Billy would have a cigarette and I'd sit there with a cup of tea and we'd talk about all the great fights and all the great champions of old and all the, you know, we'd, we'd talk about Madison Square Garden and Las Vegas and not just beating some of the best fighters in the world, but being the best fighter in your weight division. And that was the, the, that was the day when I beat the best man in my weight division, number two pound for pound. That was the day 
where I fulfilled me, me, me dream of when I said I was going to be the best in my weight division, that's when it came through that dream. And to do it in my hometown of Manchester, 22,000 people, you know what I mean? You know, and he said it would be one of the greatest wins ever in a British boxing ring, you know what I mean? It was such a, a time for Manchester. It brought so much revenue to the city. And people talk about, you know, with what Man United's done and what Manchester City's done and they won the Premiership and Champions League and European Cups and, and all that. For that still to be recognised as one of the greatest sporting event of days in the in the city of Manchester, I think that speaks for volumes as well for just how formidable a fighter I beat that night. Well, there are incredible highs in your game when you reach the ultimate level, which you have, but there are also incredible lows as well aren't there? Yeah. Um, uh, and as I say, defeat is maybe more public in boxing than any other profession, I think, any other sporting profession. Um, how, with that self, when that self-belief suddenly is whittled away or, or knocked, how difficult is it to come back from that? Well, it's very difficult and people have their own, um, their own, um, reasons why why they was able to get back on back on track you know i, I watched the brilliant um uh, thing on um live stories with vinnie jones the other day it was really emotional and really you know it was it was it was it was really good and what he said he said what normally turns it around is either you know uh, you know a relationship or your kid or a baby comes along or something like that that triggers you to get you back on the, the, the straight and narrow and for me, it was when uh, my second um, baby came along, Millie. She was uh, she was born when I was in the height of my, my my depression. I was going through a really bad bad time. I was drinking drinking massive, very very heavily. I was I'd got into drugs. I was suicidal. I was um, d depressed, killing me. I wanted to kill myself. Tried killing myself several times, and um, it was a real real bad time of it. I fell out with Billy Graham as we, we, we touched on a little bit earlier. I also fell out with me with mum and dad, you know, at the time. So it was like, you know, one minute, you know, I'm on the top of the world, then I get beat by Mayweather, then I fell out with Billy, then I then I then I beat um Malinaji, so I was back up and then I fell out with my mum and dad, then I was back down and then I got beat by Pacquiao so I was down again and my me, me frame my me frame of mind was going up and down, up and down, up and down and then Ultimately, when I, when I fell out with my mum and dad, I didn't care whether I lived or died. And it was a real, I'll tell you what, you know, a real for where I, I feel very proud for where I am present day from how bad it really was. It was shocking. But the only thing that got it was when Millie come round to me, Millie come, was born. And I thought to myself, listen, Ricky, you know, you've got Campbell, your lad, who's a little bit older now. But I said, it's not about you anymore. It's about your kids. Do you know what I mean? You've worked so hard to get where you've got and you're going to throw it all away. You're going to throw your kids away. You're going to throw your family away. You're going to throw your life away, you know, and you've worked so hard to get where you've got. And then Millie come along. So I started getting myself together a little bit. And, I, and I, even even when Millie came along, I couldn't get it together. I was still struggling, you know, with the drink and the drugs and the, the, the depression and feeling down. So I went and saw a psychiatrist who uh, I still see to this day if I need to, you know what I mean? But I'm proud to say I haven't seen him for a couple of years now. That's how well I'm doing. But I knew, I do know he's on speed dial. And uh, But that's what I, what I did. I went up. I said, I'm really struggling here. I went on my knees and I just said, I, I'm going to end up killing myself here. I can't do it on my own. Can you please help me and tell me what, what I need to do to get myself back on track? Because I've got everything now. I've got a little girl coming along. I've got everything to go. And I'm struggling. And... Uh, 
I went with him for treatment bit by bit and he told me how to, little things, how I can cope and deal with it to get me myself in a positive mood and um, where I am today, it's, it, it's great. I'm an, I'm, I'm an ambassador now for mental health with the Frank Bruno Foundation. I work with Frank for the Frank Bruno Foundation and um, it's very, very hard because I, when I knew I had it, I didn't want to come out and say it first, Ross, because I was scared. I thought people might have thought me, thought I was a nutter or something, you know. So, but I think the more people that we can get that come out and say and discuss the problems, I think, you know, that I think the better people and mental health will be. And that's what I what I did. I just I just knew I couldn't do it no more. I said, someone help me, please, because I can't do it on my own. And I think that's half the battle done with this thing we call mental health. And that's 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 what got me out of my rook. But there, you know, there is in other in other sports. There's a professional uh, football players association. There are there are places where people can go. When you think about the money that is turned over in the boxing game, do you not think that possibly a percentage of that could be put away to help fighters maybe in later life? You know, particularly if they develop any kind of health problem, but particularly maybe mental health problems, but also physical physical problems absolutely i mean this is a conversation that's been going up for, for 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 years to be honest with you and it never never seems to make any further progress uh, to be honest with you you know it's like and it's not just you know you know boxers we, we we don't come from cambridge and oxford we come from council estates and you know we come off the council estates and nine times out of ten if these boxers have got a you know a, a money through the the ability of what they've done through the boxing nine times out of ten they don't know how to look after the money you know, more successful generally anyone becomes that the more of a entourage they have around them, but they all cost, right? Yeah, boxers don't know how to cope with, if they're very fortunate enough to get through a vast amount of money, they don't know how to cope, you know, because we, you know, that's, you know, we've boxed all our life, we come from the council stage, we, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you end up being a world champion and you get this. So I was very fortunate I had good people around me to advise me, but nine times out of ten, and how many times, Ross, do we see these stories of former world champions ending up with, with no money? So, you know, they need something in place uh, to help them in that area. And then also with the mental health um, side of things, because sometimes it's it's forgotten, really. You know, in, in boxing, it's like, you know, yeah, we've had the champion, all right, he's won and he's retired now, let's move on to the next prospect. And, you know, sometimes I think uh, we're all guilty, you know, of, you know, not... Uh, having something in place like a professional footballers association, you know, a professional boxers association, just so places, uh, because nine times out of 10, they haven't got a football club behind them, you know, in order to help them and guide them and advise them. It's, you know, they're on their own. Yeah, the, agent, the agent's taking his percentage and he's now on to the next best thing, as you say. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, 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 a, it's a shame. And, you know, this, um, this raises, this, this raises its head so up. You won't believe how often this raises its head. And I think it's, uh, I think it's down to I don't know maybe I don't know maybe promoters or you know should say listen you know from every you know we're going to chuck a summit in a pot you know to try and get this thing going you know because I mean you know at the end of the day they they made they've made the money for you you know so you want you look after them after they've gone you know would make sense to me but maybe not to the people that make the biggest slice. I mean you know do you, what about that? I mean it's two questions for you. I have to I have to ask. We know that people are able now to run faster than they've ever run before. Um, people are rowing quicker. Are people punching harder now? Is sports science affecting the way people box? Or has it always just been the toughest sport there is? No, I think, um, I think you know, you, 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 from a boxing point of view, I think you're blessed with natural punching power. 
but but you know punching power can be um, developed. You know, I mean, in the sense, you know, from a technical point of view, you know, I wasn't the biggest puncher in the world, but you know, I punched with all of my body. You know, what I mean, I, I I used to punch with leverages. You know, instead of throwing, you know, a, you know, a right uppercut, Billy Graham would say, you know, before you throw the uppercut, put a little dip on it. You know, just that to get that little bit of extra bite. You know, instead of throwing your left up, turn your shoulder. You know, to get that extra little bit. And there's certain training methods you can do now where there's, you know. Years ago, the best gyms were like in the, the the days of Rocky when you know you used to be chasing chickens, you know, and you know, and having raw eggs and all that. Them them days are days are gone now. And I know some people do like the the spit and sawdust gyms, but I think you know if you've got on your doorstep, you know, like you see some of these health and fitness towns with the resistance work and the weights you can have, you know, and and some of the the apparatus that they can have on in in these gyms. I think you know if Sugar Ray Robinson had them, you know, all them years ago, you're not telling me you want to be that even harder. And I've been a bit of better boxer and a, you know a better engine. Sometimes you just got to move with the, with the with the times. You know what I mean? Sometimes you know if you've got you know if you're at the very very top level and you're evenly matched with your opponent, say me and Cross Custizu or something like that. Sometimes it can be the the difference at nowadays can be the difference between having that little bit extra nutritional advice, that little bit of extra you know you know weights to throw about, a little bit of extra machines where you can get that little bit of resistance about them machines that you can go on where it takes you to failure, you know what I mean, where it takes you to the limit. If you've got them, and or, well, if you're in the spin sawdust and all you've got is a punch bag and a speedball, it doesn't need me to tell you you know who's going to get. The best out of the training these days, and that's the way it is. It's you just got to move with the uh, move with the times. Yeah, there there are also um, a lot of sons of very famous boxers now that are doing doing quite well. Costa Zeus son, I saw uh, one a fight not not long ago. Um, your Chris Eubank son, your son Campbell. Campbell, yeah, yeah. Well, how do you feel about how do you feel how do you how, how do you feel about him going into a sport that has obviously giving you so much but it's also cost you in, in, in way well to be honest I, I never wanted him to, to to go into boxing to be honest with you my whole purpose of going in, into boxing was uh, to go into it so you don't have to <laughs> do you know what i mean so uh, but no uh, but he, he wanted to do it off his own back he's, he's watched the videos for years he's watched the videos of his dad he's watched the videos of his of his uncle matt you know all the Manchester fighters who he's been very, very fortunate to meet from a very, very young age growing up. And he's, and then he, he's just something he really took a natural fancy to. He went in the gym, you know what I mean? He started training and then he started doing a little bit of training with me here and there. And he, he absolutely loves the game and he's absolutely devastated. And I don't want to speak to uh, get too far ahead because it's still early days. I mean, he hasn't even turned professional yet, but uh, he might... Uh, he might have it, to be honest with you. You know, he's got that, you know, he, he, he fights like, like me. He's got that, you know, self-belief, dedicated. He's probably more dedicated than I was at, the, <laughs> at his age of, uh, of 19, if the truth be known. But, I, but no, he, he, uh, I think he might half have it. I've just got to you know, let him carry on the way he's going, let him keep training, let him develop and that. But uh, I, think, uh, I think it won't be long before he, he visits the professional ranks. And I think he'll... Uh, I think he'll do well. You know, he's got a lot of pressure on his on his shoulders. You know, with with what I achieved. You know, but um, he carries it well. And you know, I mean, and, and he doesn't uh, he doesn't look at that. He just says to me, "Dad, if I go pro one day, I said, how 
I want to. I'll, I'll make my own. I'll make it off my own back. I don't need you. Which is, <laughs> which is. Uh, it shows a bit of self belief then. A bit of hat and self belief. That's exactly what it what it is. He's not being nasty when he says it. But that's what I want to hear. So um, it's just a case of what's this this space he's got. He's, he's like he's got a great personality. He's got you know he's got a one liner for everyone. You know, he'll, he'll take the mickey. Where he gets that from? Yeah, you, you, you take the mickey out. You won't even know he's doing it. He's one of them, but he's uh, exciting to watch. Exciting style, dead aggressive. And if he does go through, I think they'll uh, they think they'll, they'll love him. And I don't want to put any pressure on him, but I think he might have half a chance. It's exciting times. Do you, when you see him up in the ring, do you worry about him more than you ever worried about yourself? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, when you're in the ring, as nervous as you are, you can do something about it. But when you've got your, you know, your, your a family member or your loved one in the ring, you know, you can't help him there. It's like we talked about earlier. You know, what I mean, they put the gum shield in. You know, you haven't got eleven teammates. You've got to do it on your own, and it doesn't matter what I tell him in the gym. He's got to go out there and and and, and do it once that bell goes. And uh, so yeah, it's it's very very hard. But I I I I train him now along with my brother Matthew. And uh, I feel a little bit easier now because now, you know, Matthew said, will you train me? And we, we, we you and Matthew train me. We've said, yeah, I've got a job to do now, so I can't afford to be as nervous as I was when I was, when I was just his dad, when he was, you know, training and just, you know, sit, just sat at ringside watching me some box. It was absolutely horrible. But now I know I've got a job to do. Uh, I, find, I find I'm coping a little bit better with it because, I mean, you know, I've got a job to do. Even though I'm nervous, I can't let him down. You know what I mean? We've got it, you know. And so I'm, uh, it's, I'm doing a job now training him. I never thought I would be able to train him a few years ago because it was absolutely horrible watching him fight. I was sick every time. He had to run to the toilets, throw up before the fight, Ross, and then come out and then put a brave face on him. Go on, Campbell. You know, but it's... But now, I feel, now, now, I'm, now I'm training him and I know I've got a job to do and he's got to get the best from his dad. I find I'm coping with it a little bit better, yeah. The hard one. Um, if, you were, if you went back to the heyday when you were at your best professionally, how would you gone about beating yourself? If I would have gone about beating myself, I'd have... Um, I'd have probably thrown a load of body shots, <laughs> trying to open up that that beer gut that was in behind the uh, in behind that little sick pack. But no, I um, no, I um, I don't know. I think I'd have probably um, I probably counter punched myself because I um, well, even though I was aggressive, I was I was an aggressive counter puncher where I would put me put me my pressure on my opponents, but I would let them make the first move. I'd march the ring down, I'd march the ring down. I'd faint to them, let them make the first move, and then I'd slip in and throw a body shot or a left hook or whatever. And I remember the, the fight, apart from the Mayweather fight, which obviously Mayweather's Mayweather, but I remember the fight back in my early career when I fought a guy called Eamon McGee from Ireland for the WWE. Yeah, yeah I, saw, I saw some of that. That was brutal. He was a south, yeah, he was a southpaw and he was a counterpuncher. And what he did, I'd be marching him down to the ropes and he'd go to the ropes and I'd be fainting and fainting, go on, punch so I can move in on you. And he wouldn't throw nothing. He wouldn't throw nothing. So but then I'd end up thinking, well, come on, throw something, throw something. And then he thought, well, he's not throwing something. Then I'd lead to him and he'd counter me. So it, it was, it was, you know, the best way to beat a counterpuncher is, is to counterpuncher because what is a counterpuncher? He's waiting for you to throw first. So when I to wait for them to throw first, then all of a sudden I got an opponent that was waiting for me to throw first. And it was the first time I had to deal with it in my career. And he knocked me down in the first round. 
bit of a flash knockdown, and then I thought, oh, right. And then I tried to put put it on him, and he uh, he hurt me with one in the second round, shut me up with one. It was worse than the knockdown. And I come back to the corner, and Billy turned around and said, listen, you've got to show a little bit more patience here. He's waiting to counter-punish you. He's trying to beat you at your own game here. You've got to show more patience. Well, that's what I did in the in the end. But I think that's how I'd, I'd beat Ricky out in his counter punching. Don't lead to him. If you lead to him, I'm going to get to you. If you lead to me, I'm going to get to your ribs, aren't I? <laughs> you know. So he was just dead tight and he waiting for me to do the leading. And that, I think that's the way you, you beat Ricky out. But I'm, um, but I'm retired now, so tough shit, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's a serious one for you. Who's been your big? Who's been your biggest enemy? My biggest enemy. Um, I would, I would, I would say me. In my boxing, and Gaming McGee was uh, my biggest enemy because he was, uh, he was a bit mouthy, he was a bit nasty with it. Gaming McGee, you knocked me down twice. He said, "Oh, you're just a kid, you. I'm not you." And I hated him. But then he <coughs> become my friends now. You know, whenever I go to Ireland, I have a pint of Guinness with him, and that he come in the changing room before a box cost you zoo and said, "Come on, Ricky, don't listen to these. You can do it, mate." You know what I thought? I hated you a few years ago. But that's, <laughs> that's boxing for you. That's the type of sport it is. Once you've been in the ring and you've shared that, you've shared blood with each other, you know what I mean? It's the respect is always there. So I say from a boxing point of view, he was my enemy. But I think the, my worst enemy was was myself, you know, because I, I what went on in between my ears sometimes, you know, we have, we've discussed about my mental health and and stuff um, and stuff like that, you know, which was amazing because earlier on in my career, I had such unbelievable self-belief. But then when I got by beat by Mayweather, my confidence was nuts because I, I, went, I didn't just go there going, you know, for my biggest payday and, you know, and, and I'm grateful to Floyd Mayweather. I wasn't thinking I was going to beat him. And then when I didn't, you know, it was very hard to come back and I, I had to cancel all my functions. I didn't want to show my face. When I was walking down the, the street, I used to, I, I thought people were laughing at me. This is in my hometown. I thought people were laughing at me and that's what I'd got in my head. You know, I was down after the Mayweather fight, down after the Lascano fight, then fell out with Billy, so I was proper down. Then I, I performed well against Malinardi, I was back up. Then I got beat by Pacquiao, I was back down. And then I got beat by Pacquiao, I had to retire. Then I fell out with my mum and dad, you know. So, you know, what was, you know, people didn't realise it. There was, and there was that story in the paper of me one time, when I, you know, where everyone thought I was a... Bit of a hypocrite when I was when I was found taking drugs in the in in the paper, but I was that was right in the thick of all these things going up, wrong and up and down and up and up and down. I didn't know whether what didn't know whether what I, I was you know who I was with, what I wanted to do, or just what I just wanted to kill myself. And uh, very very tough times, and uh, I, I'd still through them things. I think I still have it today, not as bad as when it you know I'm, I'm tenfold past. Uh, but them, them days now, I mean, I mean, such a, such a place now, you know, where, you know, I know, I'm, you know, I can never turn the clock back to the world title wins and the 40,000 singing, there's only one Ricky Hatton, but I mean, this is probably the, the happiest I've been now. And from where it's been, it's, it's been a big, uh, it's been a big test because, uh, you know, that little, when I used to get that little man on my shoulder, I saw oh, you, you're the failure, oh, you're this, oh, you're that, everyone's laughing at you, you know, and all that, it, it was, took me a while to get rid of him. And sometimes he pops back, but, Nowhere near as much as he used to. Ricky Hatton, you are a living legend, sir, and you're a thoroughly decent human being. It's been an absolute honour to speak to you, and thank you so much. My pleasure. really enjoyed it, Ross. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Kempcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, 
and review. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Kemp and on Instagram at Ross Kemp TV. This has been a Freshwater and the Chancer Collective production. Thanks to the team and one fine play. And until the next episode, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.